You're listening to the Union Church Podcast. For more information about Union, please visit unionboston.org. Let everything that hath breath praise ye the Lord. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with Jesus. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Let us pray. Oh God, speak now. Uh, We listen. Though sometimes your teachings are tough, you have given us words of life eternal, wonderful words of life. And it's in the precious name of Jesus the Christ that we pray. Let all God's people say amen. Amen. You know, a watered-down drink is a rather detestable thing. You'll know what I'm talking about if you've ever purchased an expensive drink at the club and not gotten your fair share of your favorite spirit. Or maybe you failed to let your cup of tea steep long enough uh, before discarding the tea bag. Or perhaps at the church potluck, the punch didn't have the right proportion of punch so that the punch didn't actually have any punch at all. Whatever the case, a watered-down drink is a rather detestable thing because it is devoid of its potency. It lacks power, and as such, it does not live up to its potential. Well, beloved, it seems to me that uh, we are uh, consuming, drinking too many uh, thinned-out, watered-down, weak drinks these days. I think we live in a world where it is commonplace to dilute rather than to concentrate, uh, to weaken rather than to strengthen, uh, to decrease rather than increase. And I get it, right? Uh, When you think about it, a weak drink, it it saves you money or saves the the bartender money. Uh, They're easier to mass mass produce and uh, you can buy them in bulk. And and right, there are those circumstances, right, where it feels appropriate uh, to depend on the diluted version of the thing. Uh, When we were children and we had to take some medicine, uh, you know, the kind with an offensive taste, we were were grateful that mom cut the dose uh, with a bit of some other liquid, uh, something to sweeten it up just a bit, or, you know, something to make that kale pectate or the Robitussin, or should I just say the Tussin, right? Something that's going to make the Tussin just a little bit easier to swallow because the diluted version of the thing was easier to take, easier uh, to take. That was funny, right? (laughs) But here's the thing, here's the thing. If you dilute the potion too much beyond its full strength, 
well then you've wasted your time because you cannot reap the full benefits if the medicine is too weak, uh, too watered down, too diluted. Seems to me that, that too often the Christianity preached in public is not the full maximum strength version informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I submit to you today, beloved, that this watered down version of Christianity is it actually it is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for sure, it is not the type of Christianity that Jesus himself preached. As recorded in the Gospel of John, as we heard, the teachings of Jesus were hard. They were difficult. Uh, but too often in this life, we have learned to settle for a form of civil religion that is at best, at best a cheap copy of the real thing. It's a knockoff that tries to substitute for the original. And, and, and although I am not personally a conspiracy theorist, we must be critical of this non-concentrated version of Christianity because at best, such a diluted religion misses the mark and at worst, it participates in the very apparatus of oppression that it was originated uh, to topple. Right? Could, could this be, when we think about it, could this be what some of Karl Marx said when he writes about religion as being the opiate of the masses? That such civil religion dulls our sensibilities and would have us to ignore the real evils in a rush to forgiveness and cheap grace. Instead of confronting the grotesque, Right in front of confronting the grotesque, such civil religion would have us quickly turn to something that's easier to look at, yeah. uh, something that's easier to take, easier to swallow. Uh, this, this Christianity often peddled in public, it's diluted, and in this dilution, it conspires with a sense of uh, diminished expectations uh, and, and, and a sense of defeatism that, that allows us to conclude that the way the world is, is the way it will always remain. And as such, our Christian witness in the world, as, as such, becomes diluted because we just keep singing the same old song. And we keep sampling from the same old played out stuff. And our Christian song then becomes mere elevator music, right? That music that just plays in the background and nobody actually pays attention to it because we're, we're, we're reading from the same old script. So I wonder today, as we conclude our emphasis on the Psalms, I wonder if it's time, perhaps past time, uh, to script a new symphony because Zion is calling us to a higher place where we might yearn for a concentrated Christianity that has the potential to make real change during this year of transformation. I wonder today if collectively we might march toward a new a public theology not rooted in a cheap Christianity, but, but one that is, that is rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By now, most, if not all, have seen that uh, infamous courtroom scene. The camera is fixed on Brant Jean, the brother of Botham, who was killed by Amber, the Dallas cop convicted of murder. We know the story. It's almost as if we have heard this song before. Amber enters uh, Botham's apartment and is startled by the black man in his own home. 
and the cop reaches for her gun and shoots him on sight. That man is in his own home. Because, as the documentary said, when they see us, Amber is convicted of murder, and during the sentencing, uh, Brant, the 18-year-old younger brother of the 26-year-old murdered accountant, asks his brother's killer for a hug. And it was the hug heard round the world. And since then, we have been uh, publicly infatuated with it, right? By and large, we have not been captivated by uh, the mother's plea for justice. Instead, this courtroom ritual performing forgiveness has gone viral, practically breaking the internet, and it's been the talk of all the talk shows. Now, beloved, I uh, do not know the grief that this young brother, Brant, in this past year experienced, uh, and I do not know the extent to which his own healing came through forgiving the cop that killed his brother. And because I really don't know his pain, I, and I, hear me clearly, I'm not here to judge him, uh, because Brant, perhaps he did, perhaps he did the hard work of forgiveness throughout the course of this past year. And maybe individually, he discovered that the power of forgiveness comes through the process of forgiveness. And while I don't know the steps that Brent has taken, what I do know is that too many folk have taken Brent's action in that courtroom as a Christian portrayal of clemency and compassion of forgiveness. As a society, how seduced we have become by this script. How familiar this song with the same old tired refrain, just forgive and forget. Seems to me that we keep sampling from this refrain of redemptive suffering that is grounded in a diluted sense of Christianity. But with years of injustice personified in the slain bodies of unarmed black men and women killed by cops, what we're really talking about is not an individual act of forgiveness, but what we're talking about here is systematic, institutional, and structural sin. That's what we're talking about. And as such, one individual cannot forgive social sin. One individual cannot forgive social, structural, institutional sin. So although I am not certain the process of, of, of forgiveness that, that Brandt experienced over this past year, uh, I am certain that as a society, communally, collectively, we are not ready just to forgive and forget. Yeah. Yeah. We are not ready. So rather than sitting in lament, we have been quick to move on because we don't want to stay in Babylon. Because it's an easier thing to do, uh, to choose comfort over conviction. Is that not what 
Bonhoeffer warns us against that, that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Instead of doing the real hard work of working the truth and reconciliation process that Archbishop Desmond Tutu taught us about, instead of doing that real hard work, we want to take shortcuts out of Babylon. Shortcuts that short circuit the process of healing. But beloved, that's precisely where we are in Babylon. And there is no quick and easy lesson, there's no quick and easy solution here, except perhaps the fact that we dilute and often water down a drink that actually needs to be bitter. So there, here, in Babylon, we must weep and never forget this pain, the real trauma that happens over and over again. So it seems to me that instead of public rituals of forgiveness, we need more public rituals of lament. Instead of singing that same old refrain, we must, during times like these, while we find ourselves like really in Babylon, during these days, perhaps it is time for us to sing a new song, maybe a new song of Zion. The biblical songwriter in Psalm 137, which is our anchor for today, you heard it. Uh, we heard it this weekend, last week, in fact. Uh, the biblical songwriter uh, first introduces us to this now familiar phrase, the songs of Zion. To be sure, this, this phrase it emerges from a rather complicated uh, set of conditions and circumstances. But at the end of the day, Psalm 137 is, in so many ways, a metaphor for the human experience of, of, the, of, of trouble that seems to mount up on every turn. A Psalm 137, it does not provide easy answers and simple solutions. Rather, it asks for us a question, which is a critical question for us during these days. What do you do when your back is really up against the wall? Psalm 137 asks that question, uh, right, because this, this question is at the very center of our human condition. And over the course of history, because Psalm 137 gets at the heart of our human experience, many people across time and space have turned to Psalm 137 as a way of, of, of making sense of processing their particular experience. They, they have rooted the plight in the plight of the Israel lights, uh, they have seen and heard their story and their particularities uh, from the experience of the Israelites more than 3,500 years ago. 
Uh, Americans and Jamaicans and Europeans and Asians have all turned to Psalm 137 as, as a way of processing life. That's why we're focusing on it. Frederick Douglass in his, his great and famous speech, what, what to the Slave is the 4th of July, uses Psalm 137 as its anchor. We see uh, 137 sung in Godspell, the musical, and it's been uh, the, the subtext of many a Rastafari uh, song because this song of lament, Psalm 137, this psalm of pain, this song of sorrow has given voice to the deep cries of the heart and suggests for us that lament might be a pathway toward healing. Suggests to us that lament, it may, it might, perhaps be a pathway toward healing. Psalm 137 is a song written in three-part harmony, right? It's a story of empire and exile. It's a story, a song of minstrelsy and mirth. And it, in part three, it is a story of remembrance, of refusal, and it ends in revenge. Right, part one of this three-part harmony, God's chosen people are exiled to a foreign land uh, after their homeland is literally destroyed uh, by the Babylonian Empire. So it's important always to read the scriptures in the context of, of the, the times in which they were written. Right? And it's important as we delve into what these songs of Zion mean, that, that, that what happens. So Zion... It, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a synonym for Jerusalem, the capital city of the, peop, of the Israelite people. Zion is utterly destroyed. Right, years before, when, when the Assyrian Empire attacks the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, there was great devastation, but the southern part of Israel is, 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 is safe, where Jerusalem, the capital, is. But then, after the Assyrians are defeated, they're defeated by a more powerful empire. The Babylonians come along. And when the Babylonians destroy, uh, they, they, King Nebuchadnezzar totally and utterly raises the entire uh, kingdom of Israel. You know, the whole kingdom that they had been working so hard over so many generations to build. So Zion, which played this very critical role in the Israelite imagination, the city of God, literally the place where the Israelites believed that, that God dwelled, when the Babylonians show up, utterly destroy Jerusalem, Zion, and take the survivors from their homeland into exile in Babylon. They're taken uh, to the kingdom of Babylonia in the capital city known as Babylon. It's the capital city then of their captivity. And there the psalm tells us that by the rivers of Babylon, the people of Israel weep. Right? Location, location, location. The place, Zion, high and lifted up, is destroyed, and they're taken to Babylon. And there beside the rivers of Babylon, the psalmist tells us that the people of Israel, they weep. 
And part two tells us of this three-part uh, three song, uh, tells us that while weeping by the river of Babylon, the capital city of their captivity, their captors come and taunt them. And they say, sing for us one of those famous songs of Zion. You know, Zion, the place we just destroyed. So while they're weeping, their captors come in and make fun of them. They taunt them, uh, they seek mirth, they seek amusement, adding insult to injury. Say, sing us one of those beautiful songs of Zion that we just destroyed. Have you ever been taunted, made fun of, when it feels like your back is against the wall and someone just comes and, 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 and just digs it in just a little bit Deeper. This is a piece of what the Israelite people are experiencing as they wept along the rivers of Babylon. But part three of this, this great story of Psalm 137 uh, moves from empire and exile, from minstrelsy and mirth, to revenge and refusal and remembrance. When asked, to sing those songs of Zion, the captive Israelites refuse to sing. They say, we will not forgive and forget and move on. Seems to me, beloved, that this speedy forgiveness that we are somehow being coaxed, seduced into is actually a modern day form of being taunted. Then wave after wave of devastation and destruction, the quick call to forgive and ignore to forget is a way of taunting, making fun of, making a mockery of an experience of real pain, real trauma. But the Israelites, they refuse to just sing to forgive, forget, and move, move on. But what they do decide to do is to remember. They remember while in captive Babylon, they remember Zion. They remember and hold close in their hearts and in their imagination, they remember Zion. That there's something about the power of memory. Something about the power of memory that when we find ourselves with our backs against the wall, that we can call to our consciousness, that we can bring something, that, that, that we remember whose we are and who we are. That no matter what people say about us and they, they, they want us to forget our primary identity, there's something about the power of memory when we call up and we look ourselves in the mirror and remember that we are children of God, created in the very image of God. To be sure, beloved, Psalm 137 has been described as America's protest song. This refusal to sing and this call to remember. For African Americans, Psalm 137 has been a marker of a resilient creativity birthed of the black experience and born of the souls of black folk. We come from a people who sing songs of Zion. 
that even by rivers we're destruction. There's a reason why here at, at, at Union we sing Marching to Zion. It's, it's, it's almost a regular song. We sing it about once a month because these songs of Zion, when reframed and refigured in the experience of black folks, it, it, when it becomes the utterance of black folks, we have a way of turning a phrase, taking what originally was a phrase of insult and injury and claiming it, reframing it, refashioning it as an anthem of strength. The enemy mocked their song and called them out of their name, but we knew who we were. And we continued to sing our song, this resilient creativity, it is a mode of resistance that no matter what you're going through and, and because of what you're going through, still we sing. Still we sing. So perhaps, Union, it is time for us to sing a new song of Zion, to sing a new song of lament, a new song of protest, a new song of freedom on this indigenous people's weekend. When, when ethnic cleansing is happening in Syria based on the mandate of the one who occupies the White House, when immigration policy continues to, to, to reject some and, and keep some, and, and some beloved of God, actually put them in cages. When Islamophobia continues to be a rhetoric uh, preached in our name, perhaps it's time for us to not only sing a new song, but to write a new script. Because when you remember those tired verses that insult our intelligence and mock our magic, only then can we write a new song and script a new symphony. Today we sing because we come from a people who sang songs of Zion. So we now, in this moment, we must sing louder, not of the diluted, watered down, weak stuff, but a song of that concentrated Christianity, because there is yet still work to do, and there's still a lot of marching to be done, even marching toward Zion, and, and don't you know that it's a little bit easier to march when you have a song? So as we march toward Zion, it's time to sing a new song of Zion, a new song of lament, a new song of protest, perhaps even a new song of freedom. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Some left. They could walk on, could march on, no further. But Simon Peter, that knucklehead, who got so many things wrong, he said, well, when Jesus asks, are you two going to depart, you 12? Simon Peter the one who messed up time and again said, where can we go? Who else can we follow? You, though the teaching is hard, you have words of eternal life, wonderful 
words of life. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about Union Church, please visit unionboston.org.